Hello, and welcome to Banking Transformed. I'm your host, Jim Roos, owner and CEO of the Digital Banking Report and co-publisher of the financial brand. While almost every financial institution wants to market to and build relationships with the Gen Z consumer, few organizations understand who the Gen Z customer is, what they want from a brand, how to market to them, or how to make them more loyal customers. Just as importantly, few organizations understand how to recruit and retain them as loyal employees. Bottom line, the Gen Z consumer is often misunderstood or miscategorized only by their digital channel inclinations. Financial institutions need to dig much deeper to maximize the value of this important segment. We're joined today by Jason Dorsey, president of the Center of Generational Kinetics and the foremost leader in the understanding of the Gen Z consumer. On the show, Jason shares some of his insights from his most recent global research, which is featured in his new book, Z Economy, How Gen Z Will Change the Future of Business and What to Do About It, who he co-authored with Denise Villa. Welcome to the show, Jason. It's been about two years since we shared the same stage at the Financial Brand Forum in Las Vegas. To say that the world has changed a bit since then would certainly be an understatement. Not only has COVID changed the way we do business, but it's also changed the way consumers as a whole shop for services, transact, interact with organizations. While every generation has shifted their expectations and the way they select and engage with institutions, there's probably no generation that is tougher to understand than Gen Z. The good news is that you continue to focus on this generation and the impact they have on employment, marketing, sales, and product development. So why don't we start from the basics? Could you provide our audience a short definition of who the Generation Z segment really is? Yeah, absolutely. And thanks again for having me on. And I do remember that event. That was amazing. Uh, We were in Vegas. Uh, If I recall, we both got standing ovations. So yay, team. And uh, and so I'm thrilled to to be able to sort of share the stage with you virtually here again. As we think about Gen Z, definitely sort of level setting, I think, is helpful, particularly those that this is new to. And frankly, Gen Z is new to pretty much everybody, unless you've been studying them like we have. When we look at Gen Z, the oldest members of Gen Z are around 24 years old. And this is very important when we think about banking and fintech and just the entire sort of ecosystem, if you will. That's because Gen Z is already the number one fastest growing generation of employees on a percentage basis. They're the number one fastest growing generation of consumers. And most importantly for this particular space, which you know I'm so passionate about, they're driving all the new banking and banking related trends because they have a fundamentally different view of engaging with money. And so they're bringing this up. And what we've seen for the first time ever, and I know you've heard me say this before, but I think it's worth repeating. What our research has shown, more than 65 studies we've led now, is that for the first time ever, technology adoption trends are being driven from the youngest to the oldest. And that is a massive massive shift. Historically, it was the oldest and more affluent would drive technology adoption down. Now we've seen it flip. And so with Gen Z coming of age, now in the workforce, now spending money, saving money, investing, all of which I know you've heard from the book and we can dive into, this is the moment where Gen Z doesn't just represent the present, but they also represent the future. And to me, the scariest part, and and you know I speak in this industry so much, millennials were very badly uh, sort of missed when they entered uh, this this space. Remember, so many groups struggled. Some even went out of business trying to understand millennials. And we don't want that to happen again. Gen Z's at exactly the right moment if you get great information, true research, to be able to take the actions right now to engage them as customers or as members and as advocates. What really differentiates this segment from other segments and what has shaped how this segment reacts to brands and the way they buy? 
Yeah, brilliant question. So when we look at Gen Z, and, and remember, so our research center is called the Center for Generational Kinetics, and we're a different type of research firm. We're behavioral researchers. So, so we're not focused so much on the what happened. What we're very focused on is the why did it happen. And if you look across this industry, there's tons of firms telling you what happened, but nobody telling you why did it happen. And you really need the why to be able to impact the future. So when we think about Gen Z, we focus on why do they view the world the way they do? So what shaped them? Well, first, their parents were different. So unlike previous generations like millennials, Millennials, Gen Z's parents are primarily Generation X and also older millennials. They intentionally have raised them differently, or as we joke a lot in the Z Economy book, that the parents of Gen Z told us, we do not want our kids to end up like those entitled millennials. <laughs> which, of course, as a millennial, I take offense to that because we're not all entitled, which is also in the book. But just notice they were parented differently. Their relationship with technology is fundamentally different because they've only known social media. There is no other media. They don't remember a time before social media. Even millennials migrated to it, but Gen Z has only known social media. And as we shared, what we know is that Gen Z trusts social media more than millennials. In fact, Gen Z trusts social media influencers more than experts, academics, and people with PhDs, even CEOs. So you have a fundamentally different relationship with social media than previous generations. At the same time, you know, people say, oh, this young generation, they're representing all this change. And I always say, no, they're not. All they're bringing is all they've ever known. They have always been able to bank through a mobile device. It doesn't occur to them to go to a branch. Why would they go there? They've always been able to share money with their friends or receive money from their parents. They've been able to always receive their paycheck, a part of it every single day. This is a generation that has a fundamentally different view and they bring that in. So the interesting part here, sort of the nuances, they don't see what they bring as change, even though everybody else does. And I think that's an important distinction. And the last one is that Gen Z does not remember 9-11. It's probably one of our most famous discoveries as you look about what separates generations and either you remember it and it changed your view of the world. I know it did for me. I was in Los Angeles. I remember watching on TV. I was a total train wreck crying because my family's all from New York and it's just a, a complete and total, you know, real life shift for me. But we see with Gen Z is they do not remember 9-11. They learned about it in school or from a parent. So that means the end of millennials and the start of Gen Z is about 1996, which gives us the birth years. They're more diverse Gen Z is than previous generations. Their focus on social causes is more extreme and stronger than other generations. And I think most importantly, that people say Gen Z is a millennials 2.0. And I always correct them and say, no, they're not. They are a fundamentally different generation. They have different views of the world. In fact, they think millennials are old. <laughs> yeah. You talk in your book quite a bit about the fact that there's big misconceptions, that there's the truth and the myths in the, the marketplace. What was the biggest misconception in your mind around Gen Z? And what was the biggest surprise of your most recent research? Yeah, absolutely. So when we look at the book, which is called Z Economy, the biggest myth that we shatter is this idea that people think young people are spending money. What we uncovered is that Gen Z is actually saving at pretty much unprecedented rates. Even teenagers have emergency savings accounts. In our latest study, we found that 12% of Gen Z by age 22 are saving for retirement. One of the top three most attractive things to a company are benefits. They want to know about retirement matching. These are 20-year-olds saying, what does your retirement matching look like? It's a huge shift. They're driving double-digit growth at thrift stores. They look for coupons and discounts and deals. The way we like to describe them is they're very pragmatic, practical, or conservative with their money. They'll have a birthday party. We use this example because it's <laughs> straight out of real life. You know, they have a birthday party. They're 13 or 16 or 18. They'll get money from their friends. They'll take the money. They'll put it away. And then they'll go back to a parent and say, hey, can I have some money? I want to go buy something. And the parent will say, no, no, use the money you just got for your birthday. And they'll say, no, no, that's my money. <laughs> 
<laughs> so they're savers already. They're predisposed to it because, remember, they came up around the Great Recession. They didn't live through it in terms of working in it, but they saw their parents struggle and others, and that profoundly, profoundly impacted them. So how strongly they are when it looks at money. So, for example, they're trying to graduate college with as little debt as possible. They want to make sure that employers, they're focused on stability rather than stock options, which is a huge swing. I mean, it's just a very different group. Even how they think about credit and loans, really fascinating. They don't resemble the generation before them. So that's sort of the most surprising thing that we were like, wow, okay, we're going to separate myth from truth here because the perception is they're out there spending all their money and not caring about it. And the truth is they track everything. They use Cash App, Venmo, whatever, and it's very important to them. Now, when we go to sort of what's changed now, and this is also a bit in the book and it's some of our latest research, you know, we have multiple studies going right now. So we're always coming out of the field and sharing our findings. Uh, what's in our new study, which we call State of Gen Z, which comes out next month, is what we found is that older members of Gen Z are having a different experience than younger members of Gen Z. And I think this is very important. So the older members, let's call them 18 to 24-ish, or even 16 to 24, the closer you are to the traditional markers of adulthood, like 18 moving out and going to college or entering the workforce uh, part-time or full-time, the closer you are to that right now, the more this is negatively impacting you, COVID-19. And as we shared in our brand new study, Gen Z was the generation most likely to lose their job, have a reduction in hours, reduction of pay, or a change in job description. People say millennials are the group that got hurt the most in this situation, COVID-19. It's not true in the workforce. It's absolutely Gen Z. So the oldest members, we believe, are going to have three to five years of economic headwinds. The flip side is the younger members of Gen Z, I'm not talking about social, emotional. I'm not talking about, you know, health, mental health, any of this. That's not what we do. But when we look at sort of the skills that they're learning in the perspective, the youngest members of Gen Z are learning tremendous skills right now. They're going to class online. They're learning how to communicate online. All Everything is now suddenly digital and directly in front of them. My daughter's nine years old, right? She's in fourth grade. She wakes up. She goes on Google Classroom. She just turned in a presentation. She did the presentation in English and in Spanish with animation. She video presented it, recorded it, and then not only did she turn it in, but then she got a video back from the teacher saying exactly what she did well. And she's nine. My daughter's nine. And she thinks this is normal. So the further you are from these jumping off points, like we just talked about, the more you're going to be able to learn from them, pick the careers that are going to be winners at that point, And you're going to be able to bring all of these new skills. And that's going to affect recruiting, training, retention, you name it, but also marketing. Think about this. I mean, just the amount of time they spend on things like Roblox and uh, Minecraft and on and on. The point here is Gen Z, the younger members, we think are going to have a huge advantage. And holistically, probably the most controversial thing in the book is that we believe that some members of Gen Z will leapfrog millennials in the workforce. And that's where the future generational collision is going to be. It's not millennials to Gen X. It's actually Gen Z to millennials because Gen Z is thinking they're going to have to work harder and longer. They don't think they're going to get Social Security, so they got to be more responsible with their money. And at the same time, they're coming in with a different work ethic and different skills. And so it, it, we think there's going to be a pretty big generational collision. So the older members of Gen Z, tougher time. Younger members of Gen Z, we think they're going to have some advantages that come out of this, which nobody's talking about. So that would be the most up-to-date, immediate, straight out of the research field study from uh, 2,000 participants. Well, it was interesting because I have a 22-year-old and uh, he would have graduated from uh, university last year. He decided because of COVID to play out his ability to stay in athletics and, and play another year's eligibility. And what's interesting, everything you say about his really tightness <laughs> financially, <laughs> and it's interesting because I, I would have thought he'd follow maybe his parents' behavior, which is a little bit looser from the standpoint of savings, credit, all these things. But he immediately took on the fear factor, and mm -hmm, he mm -hmm. actually also 
has taken a lot of courses because he said, I want to be even more marketable in a marketplace that is vastly different than what I thought it was going to be when I went to college. Yeah. And, you know, you look at your daughter and, and you say, you know, this is going to change the way we look at education, but that's a whole nother realm altogether. But the fact that classroom education, the traditional education, the longer we get into this, the less likely that's the model going forward from the standpoint of what we used to know. Yeah. And certainly there's going to be really exciting supplemental educational technologies that will come out that will be able to help them in some aspect of learning or development more so than just the traditional classroom model. Obviously, I'm very passionate about education. It's something that we study. But yes, we whatever normal or traditional classes look like, it's going to be very different going forward because we think there's going to be hybrid for quite a long time. And then people are going to say, I like this. I didn't like this. What other tools are out there? And so for the first time ever, there is a lot of transparency about what's going on in education that people are working through. But from a Gen Z standpoint, sort of going back to that, this is a really great time for them to have to learn all these technologies, which suddenly, I mean, my daughter has no fear using any of these things. And in fact, the other day, uh, I was showing her one of my presentations, you know, because I'm doing all these virtual keynotes. And she's like, Dad, you know, I can help you with your slides. <laughs> <laughs> That's, that's scary. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So I'm super excited. I think Gen Z is going to bring tremendous positives. We actually call them a throwback generation because from a behavioral standpoint, they tend to very much resemble baby boomers. And, and obviously we talk a lot about this in the book because parenting is the most important driver, but you do get these pendulum swings where they're so impacted by the external factors in the world, whether that's generation defining moments, which we just talked about, or whether that's parenting or technology, as you start to put all these together, you can really get a sense for where they are. And, and you know, we've been doing our state of Gen Z study for five years. And it takes sometimes three to five years for these to really come out, right? Because you, you've got to have enough data behind you of asking the same or similar questions to be able to see how people express themselves as they move further into adulthood, which we're finally able to see with Gen Z, which uh, it's, it's a super interesting time for our work. And in some ways, we've never been busier on the research and strategy side, uh, because every day we're finding something new that people need to know. <laughs> so in your books, Economy, you make a point that most of today's companies are not built to sell or market to Gen Z. This goes beyond just the channels they use. Can you explain this a little bit? Sure. Our primary clients, as you know, are executives, CMOs, corporate boards, bank boards, these types of groups. That's who we tend to work with. And oftentimes, they obviously generationally don't reflect uh, the group that we're talking about here, which is Gen Z. This could be their kids or in many cases, their grandkids. So on one hand, you know, sort of the big marketing thing is you got to be in the right channels. Are you using social media? You know, but what we found is when it came to Gen Z, it was more than that. Yes, at, at a bare minimum, you need to be in the right place for them, which, by the way, is not Facebook, which is where you've been spending all your money, right? Yes, you're going to have to figure out what to do with TikTok. No, they're not using uh, LinkedIn in the way that you are. You know, So you, you've got to sort of reframe what the channels are because that's sort of at, just at a very basic level. But then when it comes to engaging them, Gen Z is the most diverse generation in U.S. history, and that's generally true all around the world. At the same time, their social causes are, are very different than we've seen with previous generations. In fact, their number one social cause that we just identified because it, it's changed. It's really interesting. This year, so for the last four years, their top social cause has uh, been climate change, what they would call climate crisis. This year, it's shifted to social justice and at a much more emotional level. So when we think about how brands want to engage, they need to not only think of, okay, well, I remember when I was 18 or 22, that doesn't 
work. This is a whole different world. This is a generation that most trust social media, that most gets their news from there, that looks for influencers. That go, they understand disinformation and misinformation because they can even drive it, which is super interesting. And so when you look at engaging them and marketing to them, one, you got to make sure that you represent them in the correct way, which means you got to get real data, new data on who today's client is. The client three years ago or five years ago isn't Gen Z. The second is you want to make sure that you engage them in the forms of content that we find most valuable to them. That's typically video. It's video of somebody they can relate to. It's very short. It's high end. It's all those things that, you know, we thought, oh, one day those might catch on. They've more than caught on. That's their currency now is how they engage. And then the third is better leveraging their relationships. I mean, fundamentally, they are more connected than any previous generation in history. And as I like to point out in my talks, not only are they more connected, they're more connected to people like them. If you used to live in a rural area and you had some views on the world that were different, you like I grew up in a small town, you might not have anybody in your town that views the world the way that you do. But now you could be that 16-year-old or 18-year-old, 20-year-old, and you can go on social media and find a thousand, tens of thousands of people that have the same view. So all of a sudden we're seeing this start to happen and even this concept of factions online and so forth. So we want to make sure we get that right. And the other is Gen Z is entering the workforce later than any previous generation. So we want to engage them around things like money, retirement, investing, banking products, everything from, you know, loans, you name it. The, the idea here is they're entering later than ever before. They're more practical with their money than previous generations. So we want to engage that. At the same time, they often have the least experience because why would they go and have one of these accounts or link it to something? So there is a steeper learning curve we find around financial education with Gen Z, but we find that they really want to understand. And I think that is the massive opportunity here. They know they want to learn, just like your, the example you were sharing with your son and the way he's approaching things. And I want to think about this and take this off. Like that is, is a huge deal for them. So this idea of content marketing, like I, I tell people, it, it's not content marketing anymore. Right? It's just great content at a minimum. If you want to pull them in, get them to share it. But what we find is they're the number one generation to refer their friends because if it works for them, they want to tell other people. They're the generation most comfortable with technology, so they're willing to share and engage. They expect to have a conversation with you. They expect it to be by text message or chatbot. They do not want to have to accommodate how you prefer to sell or market because somebody else is going to sell or market to them. And if we really drill down into sort of banking, right they're coming in with a completely different view of what it means to have a relationship with a bank because to them a bank is something on a small screen it's not something that's physical even millennials remember that or i always joke and, and uh, you may have heard me say this when you heard me two years ago but i remember uh, that these big brands like jason we're doing all this great stuff to reach out to gen z you know we're donating money to these social causes i'm like great so does that mean you're out there on a football field with a humongous check which is a monetary instrument they've never seen and don't understand and you wrote in cursive. Great work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So so when you talk about channels, we can talk about TikTok, Facebook, LinkedIn, all the things. But are we also talking about things, and I think you just mentioned it, around texting, around content, around podcasts or webcasts as being ways to connect with this group? Because I know my son, now mind you, part of his, the college life, but he's always listening to podcasts. Whenever he travels, he doesn't listen to radio. He listens to whatever podcast he's interested in. He's texting all the time. And, you know, banks traditionally are really steeped in direct mail, email, maybe even web connections. But the bottom line is, I don't get the feeling that that, that generation is even looking at that stuff. You're exactly right. And I think it's a great distinction to make. And, and I think it's important to say everything you just listed has worked in the past. And so there's always sort of this inertia 
of this has worked for a long time. Let's just keep doing it, right? The last you want to do is break the thing that works. On the flip side, you could miss this entire generation. So what we find, number one, and you can see this in this economy book, we talk about this company called Everywhere, where they do a payment by text message. And it's growing rapidly because all I have to do is reply yes, and it automatically charges my credit card or what have you. And then I can even engage in an entire conversation. So all of that happens by text message instantly. And it's just, it's so incredibly easy. And because of that, companies are going, well, of course I need to be able to do that. Because the first time Gen Z is able to pay by text message instead of having to swipe something or scan something or go through seven steps to go, why isn't everything like this? Sort of how we view Amazon now, right? The, the second thing is you think about podcasts. I do think we're in sort of this golden era of podcasts where I think there's going to be a distinction in the future is video versus audio. Because what we're finding is younger people really do like video. They like to be able to see it. They'll even have it playing in the background because YouTube is where they're getting their information. In fact, our new study, YouTube was the most trusted platform right now for financial and other information, which is pretty shocking, but I think really important because most banks aren't going there. When we speak to all these banks, we have to be like, hey, you're gonna get uncomfortable with this. Doesn't mean you have to do it, but let's not hide from the truth of where people are going for that type of information. I think that's really important. So these content pieces like you talked about, I think are very important. The other part that I don't wanna gloss over because it keeps coming up in our studies is that Gen Z expects the deepest level of personalization on digital engagement. And what I mean by that is in our work, we've seen that Gen Z more than any other generation is prepared to give you their personal data in order to have a better digital experience more than anybody else. And so they expect that digital experience to really be fantastic. And this is a very tough situation for many legacy banks and for credit unions, right? They're running on traditional, you know, legacy systems. It's very hard for them to adapt. It can be expensive. You know, the regulation, we go all and on through that. But at the end of the day, Gen Z, they don't care. They want, they're going to go wherever it's easiest, where they understand me. They can tell me the things that I need to do. They can alert me if I need to be alerted, but they're going to help me to do the things that I need to do. And they're going to make it super easy. And in exchange for that, I'm going to give you more and more and more of my data, which is what they're telling us. And this is interesting because the older you go, the less willing people are to give them their data. <laughs> right. The younger you go, the more they're saying, yeah, but just make it a better digital experience. And I think that really is the key. People often say, as you know, at these conferences, oh, well, we need to be mobile first. I'm like, no, no, don't sell yourself short. You need to be mobile only. Because if there's anything that's second, third, or fourth, you're in big trouble with Gen Z. <laughs> well, it's interesting because the major difference in this category is that all they've known is digital transactions, mobile, pretty much the most part, maybe iPad, but that no longer yep. used. Do you see these trends then moving up the demographic groups where you're going to start seeing the millennials and Gen X and even baby boomers really quickly because of COVID embracing a lot of these changes from the standpoint of how they want to interact, the, the need for personalization, because they're getting the, the heavy dose of exposure that is all that the Gen Z category new, but they're getting it now. And we're seeing that digital transactions are skyrocketing at Bank of America, a lot of the bigger banks. But do you see these almost being a bellwether for what's going to happen in, in past generations? That the embracing of this is going to happen quicker than we would have ever imagined, only because we are forced into digital? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we talk a lot about the difference here at CGK between acceleration and innovation. And right now, we're, we're definitely on the tailwinds uh, of lots of acceleration. People who didn't want to go and make the move to mobile banking or digital banking uh, are making that move. I mean, my dad would have never done it. He just thought it was ridiculous. And now he does it because it was the option that worked for him. And now he's like, this isn't bad. I'm like, oh, that's shocking. It's not. There's lots of people to do that. Right. So there's definitely that sort of tale of people that are moving in that direction. COVID sort of forced that. And I think like anything, 
meaning if we stay in a situation that it becomes a behavior, then that's normal. And then all of a sudden, that's what they carry forward. I don't think that was driven by Gen Z. That was clearly a result of COVID-19 and sort of the new structural changes that people are having to deal with, as well as health issues and concerns and so forth. But sort of stepping back from that, what we see is that Gen Z will never remember anything differently. And I think that is really the key here. This is not new. This is not innovation. They have always been able to send money to each other digitally. They've always been able to, to do everything through that mobile device when it comes comes to money. They've not had to step out of that experience. Now, does that mean they won't have to in the future? Sure. Maybe in the future they got to go and, I don't know, sign a loan document in person for some reason. Hopefully not. But fundamentally right now, the training that they have, the behaviors that they've established is that banking is digital, period. Like full stop. That's it. And so as you look at your plans, the strategic plans for the next one, two, three, four years, if you're not going in with that mindset, if you're still saying, oh, well, we need these other parts. Yes, I know you want to adapt to every generation. And I would never tell you to bet everything on Gen Z. We got enough fintechs that are trying to do that right now. But what I would say is this isn't just about Gen Z anymore. Other generations now expect this, and it is rippling up, and it is becoming normal. COVID made it faster, but Gen Z expects it. And as you want to keep, and this is, I think, a big deal right now in retail banking, if you want to be able to keep the next generation as customers or members, it's very important that you show you understand them. You cannot take them for granted because it's never been easier for people to leave, particularly young adults. To that point, a lot of financial institutions may go after the segment because of a future value proposition. But beyond the future, is there a value today? Yeah, absolutely. What we see, depending on how you look at, you know, sort of the plan of the bank or the plan of the credit union or financial institution, Gen Z can bring a lot of value right now as we sort of look at that. One, besides the lifetime value that you talked about, they're great for bringing their friends to a financial institution. So you can actually drive down the cost for acquisition if you have a really great referral model. Part of it is to not use the word referral. Uh, as, as you know, I talk about all the time, there's other words that you can use to actually get them to bring their friends, bring their family. And interestingly, we're seeing them actually get their family members, so these are other generations, to open accounts with a financial institution because Gen Z tried it and liked it and said, wow, this is so great. This is way better than where we've been banking for the last 10, 15, 20 years. So that is definitely going to happen. The other is we're seeing Gen Z finally start to take out loans, take out credit. So what do I mean by that? Automotive is doing really well with Gen Z. People thought Gen Z was not going to buy cars, but the reality is they are still buying cars. Now we can argue about uh, sort of what that will look over their lifetime, totally get that one, but they are still buying cars. They are taking out credit cards. People thought, oh, Gen Z wasn't going to use credit cards. Actually, their numbers aren't that different than previous generations when it comes to that. So as you look at this generation, they are starting to hit those. And even if we went broader, they are opening retirement accounts and they are saving for retirement. And so all of a sudden, they're really starting to look at other financial products, which is very, very exciting. And then if you really sort of get into the weeds of it, like I like to do, because you know me, this is my passion. You can look at like right now that one of the companies in the book is called Instant Financial, where they figured out how to give you half of your money after every shift at no cost to you. So all of a sudden they're able to say, oh, you worked at whatever restaurant or whatever hospital, you earn $62.12. Would you like half your money? Yes or no. And so all of a sudden that's starting to change the relationship. And then all of a sudden you can begin to sort of monetize that in different ways. And I think you're going to see a lot more innovation around that. And, and as you sort of look ahead, Gen Z becomes much more valuable the more that banks sort of recognize that, that just being a retail bank isn't going to cut it anymore. And that's scary. And none of them like to hear that, but it's absolutely the truth. And that's what's actually going to buy the longevity that they actually want. They all want to be stable and be around for a long time. And what I'm saying is, if you don't adapt to what's now considered normal, you're really putting your future at risk. Well, it's interesting because you've referred to it twice or three times now, where even the definition of what a product is in the banking world, lending, 
it's really now credit, which is a completely different realm because they look at buy now, pay later, the short-term loans, the bridge loans for paycheck advances, all these things as being credit because they don't necessarily want long-term loans. They want money for a short-term and, and to pay it back as soon as possible. They've already dealt with the whole, eventually, as certainly the older groups, with the whole issue of student lending, but they even mm -hmm. want to get rid of that very quickly. So I think, you know, from what you just said, the view of what a product is has got to be rethought in that it's not a traditional installment loan, 24 payments. No, it's credit when I need it, paid off when I can as quickly as possible. Yeah, there's a great example of this that we did a big research study for a company called Sezzle. And so what Sezzle enables you to do is when you go to check out for many of these uh, primarily e-commerce retailers, you get the option to pay in three installments and there's uh, no interest and no other fees. They just divide it up and then obviously the retailers um, assume the expense there. But the key is, as soon as you realize you can go buy those shoes or whatever it is that you want and pay it out over three payments and then in the process get what you need already and that becomes normal and easier for you, you're like, well, why would I not, why would I not do this, right? Why put this on a credit card or why do these other things? And so now as that becomes more and more normal, that's what they expect. So I really think the whole relationship between Gen Z and credit is going to be different than other generations when they think about lending or credit. Uh, one of the companies I work with a lot is called Credit Strong. And, you know, I get to see their data and, and we just did a study for them. And you realize that, that by generation, there are very different views of credit and what does that mean? And I think the distinction you made in language is actually a really interesting generational distinction. Uh, you use the word lending, which I think is very much a non-Gen Z term, right? But everybody else understands that, right? It's somebody like me who studies Gen Z. If we use the word credit, they're very interested in it. If we use the word lending, they're not interested in it. <laughs> right, right. You know, you know, financial institutions also tend to think that the younger the consumer is, the less loyal they are. Is this a misconception with Gen Z? It's absolutely a misconception, and I've seen the data. And, and the reason is, you know, when we work with financial institutions, they will share with us their data, so we get to see a lot of it. I think that where it gets murky, and this is where sort of bank execs or financial execs get confused around it, is the younger you are, what you'll find is they may have accounts at multiple different financial institutions. And then they'll say, well, they're not loyal to us. And I'm like, no, no, they actually will shop based on feature. So if somebody somewhere else gives them a feature, gives them what they need, then, then they'll have accounts at several different places. And that's normal. And it's not hard to keep up with it because, again, it's all through a mobile device. And what we're finding in terms of actually keeping accounts with financial institutions, Gen Z is roughly the same of any previous generation. The only reason this duration is shorter is because they're younger. So we don't have enough history to be able to really compare apples to apples there. So we believe that Gen Z is going to be loyal. We know they seek out stability, which is a huge deal, particularly any community banks that, that are listening in right now. Uh, stability is a very big thing to talk about when it comes to Gen Z, not just how long you've been around, but stability. That's very important. We see with the generation. And so as you look ahead, we believe that Gen Z will be very loyal because it's one of the characteristics that's already come out. They're looking for people that understand them, better know them. So you create a better experience. You're going to stick around. And all of a sudden you have a very loyal generation that is predisposed to saving and really thinks about these financial products sort of front of mind. And one of the things that came out of the last study we did was that Gen Z talks with their parents 
fairly frequently about money. And I want to share that because that is different than other generations. Other generations did not talk about money. You know, we, we found frequently boomers did not talk with millennials about money, right? It was taboo. They never knew how much money you made or how much debt you had or these sorts of things. And then, of course, you run into the Great Recession and millennials crash into this mountain of student loan debt. And then all of a sudden, now finances is a hot topic, but they're past, you know, in some ways, the, the oldest millennials are over the age of 40 now, where, you know, you, they missed this golden opportunity to really sort of get ahead of that. And we think with Gen Z, because of who their parents are, Gen X in particular, who's skeptical, they really want to talk about money with their kids. They want to make sure that they're having these conversations. And you see products like Greenlight that's helping kids already, very young kids, be able to better understand how money works. You can even understand how interest works. You know, my, my daughter has her Greenlight card and she's very excited about it. And all her cousins have a, you know, and it's just, it's just so fascinating to me that when we look at this generation, again, this is not new for them. My nine-year-old daughter will always think that she could have her card that she can get money on for her allowance and for her rewards that she earns and she can earn interest. And, you know, that to her is completely and totally normal. And she's nine because it's so hard to sort of create these generational goggles and look through the world that way. But that's what they expect. I'll be like, OK, you earn two dollars for I don't know. Uh, you, you took the dog on a long walk or something. And she'll like, OK, just make sure to put on my card. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, exactly. Well, it seems to give the re- Don't give me the cash. <laughs> the, the request for money as your daughter gets older and is out of the house more than in the house becomes a text message. You know, my son goes groceries plus rent 330. And he knows, hey, I need to send that to Venmo. I got to do this. I did. I'm going like, gosh, I, I remember when you used to have a conversation, you used to ask, my, you used to have to sell the concept. Now it's simply a transactional thing. You know, many financial institutions, mostly overseas, are starting to embed other services that are non-financial in an open banking environment. You have Lacacia Bank building a, a platform called Imagine, which ties in gaming, music, offers for discount entertainment, technology offers, all within a singular account that becomes a relationship that sometimes doesn't even have the financial relationship as part of it. So it's basically the funding of that relationship is really being done by third parties in an open banking situation. Is this a viable strategy or are we asking too much for a, a Gen Z consumer to say, I don't mind going to one place and getting it all? I think it's a viable strategy. I think in the U.S. we obviously bump into regulatory and other sort of status quo issues that can be uh, pretty difficult in this particular industry. But fundamentally what we see is that the younger you go with banking consumers, the more informed they want to be, the easier it should be, the more it should help to predict their spending, their savings and what they want to do, alert them, and then tie that to other preferences, whether that's goals, whether that's uh, you know discounts, all those sorts of things. And it should go through one hub for many of them. Now, right now there's third-party providers that are obviously trying to do a lot of these different things. But I could definitely see that the really innovative banks are going to be thinking about what are the right things to incorporate. And I think part of the trick here, and this is where, you know, somebody like me who's a researcher gets sort of wonky about it, is that when you do studies to figure out what people want, you're going to find out big differences between what older generations want from their banking relationship and younger generations want from their banking relationship. And I don't mean on a fundamental level like, oh, I want a bank I can trust and rely on that's going to be there for me and treat me with respect and dignity. I'm not saying that part. I mean, in terms of these transactional pieces like you just described. And so what does that mean? It means when you look at the data, you actually want to weight it towards the younger group because they are the future. And you want to make it really easy for other people to opt out and just say, I'm not interested in any of these things. Because the key is to get them to opt in, to have more types of relationships that are considered value add. So they really feel like this is their home base 
for their money, for their financial decisions, for how they engage in the world um, with their money. And, and I think that is incredibly exciting. It's very scary for lots of banks, but I think it's incredibly exciting and a huge opportunity because frankly, there's a lot of banks and credit unions, just financial institutions that are not gonna adapt. And you know, they're, they're gonna sell, they're gonna do whatever they do, they're gonna merge. We'll come up with a bunch of different ideas, but fundamentally they're gonna choose, hey, we don't, we're gonna just ride the wave that we have and that's gonna be what it's gonna be. But for those that really wanna grow, those that really wanna prove the potential here, and we think it's extraordinary, they are going to really do the right research, come up with the right strategy, and be able to grow with this generation at an incredibly, incredibly exciting time. Gen Z does not really look at banks as banking, but they look at it as a, a facilitator. What do you see as a competitive scenario out there when you look at big techs getting into financial services, but certainly you know they're not going to become a bank? The situation where Google's partnering with banks to be the front end experiential layer, what Amazon or Facebook or Apple or even Goldman Sachs, which is kind of funny because none of our kids would ever know what Goldman Sachs really used to be, <laughs> you know, and as far as an institutional organization, do they care? And are these really big threats because they really don't care? about what bank it is. I think it's a bigger threat than people in banking sort of give it credit for. Much like, uh, you know, people didn't think Amazon was really going to be a threat or Facebook was going to be a threat. You know, we could sit here and go through a whole list of these. And the reason is it doesn't look, smell or, or feel like a bank. So therefore it's not a bank. And so it's not a threat. That's sort of a lot of what I hear. And they're like, of course they want the bank that they can drive past. Or of course they want the bank that says bank on it or been around a hundred years, whatever. Gen Z doesn't care. I mean, they absolutely. And, and so the trick is, and we see this in other parts of the world, they really want ease of use. They want security. They want to make sure they can get the information they need. They can get fast responses if they have questions. And they want to do all that through a digital device. And if that is true, then there are advantages to being able to integrate it with other things like you shared in terms of Facebook, Google, and others. The key is Facebook, Google, all these we just listed, Amazon even, uh, at the end of the day, they're all data companies. At the end of the day, that is what they are. And so because they are better with data, generally speaking, than pretty much everybody else, they already have a massive leg up. And, and we could go through the whole list. You could do Facebook, you could, you could put Apple in that list, frankly. And so as you start to look at that, you realize those are the big long-term threats, sort of these existential threats where you're gonna be, if you're not adapting, you could just be displaced. Not that somebody's intentionally trying to put you out of business, but somebody's just building a relationship differently. They don't even think they're being disloyal to a bank because they're just having such a good experience over here. And I do think that is a real risk. Now, how those types of groups choose to ultimately navigate the world of banking, particularly the regulatory side. I think that obviously remains to be seen. And plus you got all the, the government stuff going on right now with sort of anti-big tech. So all of those things are gonna continue to play out, which may put the brakes on some of that. But fundamentally, I think there is a real key here where things that don't look like banks are gonna increasingly encroach on the banking space. And I think we're gonna look back one day and go, wow, all of a sudden I do my banking with Google or Facebook or whomever it is. And I would even argue, you could look at things like, I'm just gonna make these up, but you could look at uh, Venmo or Cash App or PayPal and some of these others. Many Gen Zers already treat it like their bank. Yeah, right. Exactly. That's where they. Yep. I mean, that's where they receive money. That's where they send money. That's where they keep track of their balance. It's super easy. And so I, I would argue that you know, in many cases, particularly the amount of money that young people leave in those accounts really shows that they are already thinking about them as if they were a bank, even though they may not have all the banking features. People consider them necessarily to be a bank. So we're going to do a big pivot here. You dedicate an entire section of your book's economy to the future of work and Gen Z's role in that. How do institutions need to adjust to reflect what a Gen Z employee really wants from an employment perspective? 
So the biggest thing when we look at employment in banking with Gen Z is we have to sort of recast what it means to work with a financial institution because so many young people think, okay, this is going to be, I'm just going to make this up, super conservative, or I don't fit the profile. That's a real answer of uh, working in banking, right? For any number of reasons that we could go to, all of which people know. And so we've got to really sort of recast or reframe what a career in a you know, financial institution actually looks like and can look like. And there's several key ways that, that we need to do that. One, obviously, we, we have to increase diversity in banking. No question about it. Gen Z is the most diverse generation in U.S. history, and they expect diversity throughout banks at every level. And I'm talking about from senior execs and boards all the way down to the, the most front line, right? The second is when we think about how banks are marketing and what we call sort of employment branding, we need to bring forward how banks actually make a difference. Like people think about banks and think about making money, but Gen Z is very social cause driven. So we really need to play forward what the banks are doing. And I'm going to, you know, definitely say something uh, that's controversial, but I'll say it, you know, giving money a big check to a big national group doesn't resonate with Gen Z in the way that people think. They want to know what are you doing in your community? How are you helping people like me? These are real questions and videos and photos and stories really help to bring that to life. And then to get into some details that I think are really important, Gen Z needs to be able to apply for a job on a mobile device. And that job application, particularly the description of it, the first two sentences are incredibly important along with video and other stuff. But here's one of the tricks that we share in the Z economy book, what we found is if you enable people to apply on a mobile device and save as they go, many Gen Zers will start an application and not finish it because they got a lot going on in the world. No problem. You treat it like an abandoned shopping cart in e-commerce. You send them an email or you send them a text, whatever they said, and you say, hey, Jim, I saw that you started your application here. We think we might be a great fit for each other. We'd love for you to finish it and let's see if we're a fit you know, click here, here's the link. And you can drive completed applications up 50%. And as I always say, and I say it in the book, you know, you can't hire people who don't apply. So we need to get more of the applications in. And so once you do that, the onboarding piece we think is going to be very different. There's a company that we write about in this economy book called um, Enboarder. And what Enboarder does is they do your entire onboarding process by text message. And Gen Z loves it. I mean, loves it. But they have all the interactions by text. And this isn't like, you know, Jim, you and I are texting each other. And so we're having to go through this. It's actually all pre-built. It, it, uh, they use all this fancy machine learning to optimize it every time. They add everything to your HR records. They do all the stuff that you would think they would do. But it's seamless. And it's all through text message because that's how Gen Z prefers to communicate. What an amazing welcome experience when you're able to do it that way. And then you get into the learning side. We think banks really have to focus on talent development and not in the historic way, like what's the future talent development of the bank? We got to flip it. And it's just how do we develop the talent of our people? How do we help them? Uh, one of the companies that I talk about a lot is called Skooks, and they have millions and millions of people on their platform. And so they do sort of this social learning, which is super cool. And they're able to serve up videos that are tied to shifts and tied to all these other things. So you get only the video you need at exactly the right time on a mobile device, and then you can tie all these things to it. Well, all of a sudden, it's not some generic LMS that you and I have both used. We're like, okay, this was built 20 years ago and it's not working, right? So you really got to flip the script because what we find from Gen Z, and we put this in the Z economy book, Gen Z expects their employers to help them develop their talent. But through the lens of help me to develop my talent, not let's be part of the talent development pipeline at, you know, such and such bank. That's not interesting to them. So as you start to see that, we see those changes. As we look at motivation, they really want to know that you took the time to understand them. And one of the ways to do that, and this is in our brand new study, uh, also in the book, is frequency of communication with them is much higher than previous generations. Now, there's an important distinction because some people go, oh, great, here we go, the millennials again. I'm like, no, no, this is totally different. What we found is that 
Gen Z needs more frequent communications, particularly if they're working remotely or if they're working in a place where they don't interact with their boss often. What does that mean? It means twice a week, they need an instant message, they need a text, they need an email, they need whatever it is you wanna send them that just lets them know that you know that they exist. That's it. So it's actually much less communication than people are typically used to giving. It's just more frequency so they can stay engaged. This is particularly true in remote work environments where they're not around other people. And there's this fear, particularly among younger employees, that if they're not talking about me, I may lose my job. And so an easy way to overcome that is just to keep them involved in that conversation. I think that one's super important. And then one other one that I do want to bring in here just because it's a sensitive topic. And you know me, I never shy away from sensitive topics. Right now, what we just found in our new study is how you let go of employees determines the attitude of the employees who stay. And, you know, this is an industry that you and I work in this industry all the time. I mean, this is my passion and my love. And and so often, you know, you see the number of layoffs or furloughs or whatever. At the end of the day, what our research shows is how a boss or manager or supervisor treats employees when they have to let them go, which we know happens, uh, determines whether or not the employees who stay are going to stay long term and be engaged because they're all watching what's going on. And so, as I say, I'm, I'm just sort of my soapbox right now, you can let employees of every generation go with respect and honesty and dignity and make them still feel like a human as best you can under the circumstance versus some generic email or a video you send to everybody or whatever these sorts of things are. And it's that direct supervisor that's the one that they expect to be able to have that interaction with, even if it's just doing a Zoom, but it's something that makes them feel like a human at this really, really difficult time. So I just say that because I think it's really important we do that. And then the last thing also, obviously, in the Z Economy book, but I want to make sure that we tie this back to the workforce piece, is we would encourage everybody to use the birth years in the book to create what we call a generational snapshot. And that's a pie chart that breaks down and shows you each of the different generations by percentage. And it's really helpful because people are always shocked every time. I mean, you know me, I speak all these big events. And, and they're always shocked when they actually do this, particularly when they do it with management, they do it front lines, and then they do it with customers or members. People think, oh, we understand our generations. I'm like, really? And then I have everybody guess what percentage of their uh, customers are which generation, what percentage of their team members, and everybody guesses wrong. I mean, everybody. You know, it's, it's hilarious, but it's sort of that wake-up call of, I think I knew it. And maybe I did three years ago, but wow, has it changed? <laughs> so finally, Jason, what is the most important recommendation you could provide to financial service companies that hope to market and build relationships with the Gen Z consumer? The most important recommendation I would make is don't pick up your millennial playbook and just drop it on Gen Z and think it's going to work. Take the time to understand the mindset, the behaviors of the Gen Zers that you're trying to reach and create something new for them. It is worth the effort because if you don't, you won't be successful and you'll be frustrated. And we'll hear people say, oh, well, Gen Z, they don't wanna be loyal to banks or they don't wanna, no, no, none of that's true. We can prove that they do wanna be loyal, that they do wanna refer their friends, that they do bring their parents and their grandparents, that they're perfect for where we see the future going if you're willing to adapt to them. And so what I would say again is go back and create that generational snapshot, see where you are with Gen Z, look ahead at the bank in terms of your strategy and make sure that you are doing things to reach them where they are. The other part of that, that's sort of one layer deeper, because you know I like to get into a little bit of the details, uh, you will see differences by generation based on geography. And you have a huge international following, I know, and I speak all around the world. And we have studies going all over right now in Germany and uh, China and all these places. So geography has a big impact on generations. And, and for those of you listening from around the world, it's very important when you think about generations like Gen Z that you do regionalize it. 
even in the U.S., we'll see differences between urban and rural. And then as we travel around the world, we'll see differences. Now, one important note here, Gen Z is the most consistent generation in the world. And I, I share that because, remember, we've done studies all around the world, more than 65 now. And, and what we find is that Gen Z is the most consistent or similar in terms of how they view mobile technology, money, banking, entertainment. You know, I can go through this whole list. Does that mean they're the same around the world? Absolutely not. But they're the most similar. So if you are a global brand or if you are looking for insight, you absolutely can glean from other parts of the world. In fact, some parts of the world uh, are a little bit further ahead than obviously we are in the U.S. for some of these things. So you can pull those right into your plan and vice versa. So it, it's a very exciting time to think about Gen Z, but we always want to make sure that we think about them as clues. Generations are clues and not a box, but they're clues that allow us to connect with, build trust, and drive influence. And when I look at the future of financial institutions, that is absolutely the heart of it. Jason, thank you, as always. I could write five articles from simply the companies you mentioned. And as I said, I, I really enjoyed your book and uh, appreciate it. And what's interesting is I think if nothing else, financial institutions have to realize that Gen Z is really a bellwether for how other generations are going to react. It's not like this is the beginning of future trends. This trend is going to be very different in that this generation is the way that seniors are going to react in some point in the future, because they're really driving the way digital is happening and the way it has to happen going forward. And it's a better engagement level. So thank you again, Jason. Thank you so much. Thanks for uh, letting me talk about Zeconomy and uh, just always a pleasure to be with you, Jim. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Banking Transform, raised the top five banking podcast. I generally appreciate the support you've provided since we started this endeavor. If you enjoy what we are doing, please be sure to subscribe to Banking Transform on your favorite podcast app. In addition, please take a few seconds to show some love in the form of a review. It means the world to me and to our organization. Finally, be sure to catch my recent articles on the financial brand and check out the research we're doing on digital transformation, the future of work in banking, retail banking innovation, and the changing dynamics of financial marketing for the Digital Banking Report. This has been a production of Evergreen Podcast. A special thank you to our producer, Leah Longbreak, and audio engineer, Sean Rule Hoffman. I'm your host, Jim Roos. Until next time, stay safe and stay healthy. The Jim Stroud Podcast explores the discoveries and trends forming the future of our lives. Brain-to-brain communication, robot bosses, microchip implants for workers, and artificial intelligence replacing human workers are all happening now. If you want to know what's happening next, subscribe now to the Jim Stroud Podcast.